0: Hello, you're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund.
1: And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat.
0: And after 135 episodes, we have decided to mix up our intro music. How about that, Simone?
1: How about that? (laughs) I like it. It's, It's snazzy, upbeat. Frankly, we need some snazzy and upbeat these days.
0: Exactly. You know, we love our Lost Bayou Ramblers, and I will have to say, like, Beasts of the Southern Wild will forever be one of the most formative films I've ever seen. I, th- I think it's in large part what brought me back to Louisiana. But, you know, we just decided to mix it up and, and kind of have some some new music for the show. So who knows? Well, we may go back to Lost Bayou at some point, but love the selection um, that we have. and. It's good to connect with you. It's it can't. It's hard to believe we're almost in mid-August. You know the summer is flying by, but it's going to be hot for a while, I imagine.
1: <laughs> I think so too. And and Jacques, I'm actually coming to you today from my actual office, which I don't think I've ever ever done a Delta Dispatches episode from my office here in Thibodeau, Louisiana. So I got to work on my my backdrop. So
0: I, I love to you know to know that you're back in the office. You're holding down the fort. Um, and, you know, we've got so many great episodes coming up. Um, a reminder that you can subscribe to our show, subscribe to the podcast, rate us, like us, share us with your friends, um, because, you know, today is the first of what will be many exciting episodes to come. Um, I'm excited to have our next guest on. I can't believe it's been about a year since we had him on the, on the the epi- on the show for the first time. Uh, A lot has happened in that year, and a lot is continuing to happen. So um, great to have Steve Caparata, meteorologist with WAFB, back on Delta Dispatches. There was some news that came out, uh, I think, last week about the Atlantic hurricane season and an updated forecast. So we wanted to touch base with Steve, have him walk us through it, kind of answer some questions, and then just hear what else has been going on. So welcome back to Delta Dispatches, Steve. How have you been holding up over the last... I don't know, year, 10
2: years of what has been 2020. How are things going? That's a good way of putting it. A year, 10 years. I I don't know how long it's been, but uh, you know, we're we're getting by. I've got two young daughters. uh, One's back in daycare. The other, we we do have home and uh, schooling here at home. So uh, that's a challenge. I work from home in the morning, then go into the office. My wife, fortunately, can work from home all day. So uh, We're getting through that just like so many other people, but otherwise doing pretty well.
1: Getting to know your home really well, huh, Steve?
2: (laughs) Uh, Maybe a little too well.
0: Yeah, well, we can certainly relate to that. Um, And they're thinking about all the parents right now. I mean, I know there's a lot going on with, you know, schools going back or all those sorts of things. So um, I know Simone can certainly empathize and, and we're thinking about all the parents right now. So I um, wanted to talk through this updated Atlantic hurricane forecast in a second, but um, what ha- else has been going on this year from a weather standpoint? Have there been any big events that you've tracked over the last several months?
2: You know, fortunately, lately, it's been pretty quiet. Uh, back in June, I think it was, we uh, we did have a tornado come right through uh, Baton Rouge, where I'm based. Uh, we, we had a few on that day, so that was kind of interesting It uh, actually crossed right over I-10. Fortunately, it was early in the morning, and uh, there was some damage, no injuries. Uh, But other than that, uh, you know, we had uh, Cristobal, uh, that uh, tropical storm uh, that came in uh, near Grand Isle in New Orleans, but it was kind of lopsided, and really more the significant impacts were over to, (coughs) excuse me over into uh, mississippi and alabama so even though we kind of got that early season hit we were kind of fortunate with that one
0: yeah i want to talk about that and some of those early storms in a second but first there's some late breaking news that i saw on your twitter feed and i really really need to get to the bottom of this or help you or have you help us get to the bottom of this um did i dream this have my eyes deceived me did you really tweet
2: about a cold front that is coming um, up in yeah. August. Please so you tell me this drinking. is
1: going to happen. You've
2: Steve. been drinking. And you see, now, now you're going to get the hype machine going. And now I'm going <laughs> to regret tweeting that. I'm trying <laughs> to give people something to have a little hope for. Uh, but, yeah, we have seen these indications that as we get into uh, the next week that there may be a bit of a cool front sneaking down towards the Gulf Coast. Now, that's always dicey in August. The models often kind of tease us, they'll show it, and then it never really makes it down this far. But it's something we're going to watch for. Uh, It's been showing up for a couple of days, so there's at least a little bit of hope that we could get a little bit of an unusual dose of some cooler and drier weather for the mid part of August.
1: Jacques already got his cardigan on. I can see it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
2: I think we
0: all could use a little sweater weather right now, but we won't hold you to anything, Steve. We'll just, you know, like you said, put out hope for the best. And if we can wear our cardigans in a few in a week or two, you know, that'll, won't be the worst thing in the world. So go big uh, or go home. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, people are going to start cooking the gumbo and, and all that. So, um, all right, well, shifting gears a little bit to, let, I mean, we're in the midst of, you know, I guess the height of hurricane season. And you mentioned we've already had somewhat of an active season there, of course, was Cristobal, um, you know, Hannah hit Texas. There was Isaias, which was kind of tracking along Florida on the East Coast last week. So, you know, tell us a little bit about the hurricane season to date. Has it already broken some records compared to prior seasons?
2: Yeah, it absolutely has. Uh, I've lost track of exactly how many, but we keep saying, you know, when Hannah developed, it was the earliest H named storm on record. And then Isaias, I think, broke the record for I. So we've had nine named storms to date and two hurricanes. Uh, So it's absolutely been a fast start. But sometimes uh, just counting the storms doesn't paint the full picture. What's kind of been interesting, there's another measure that meteorologists use. It's called, uh, or the acronym for it is ACE. And it stands for Accumulated Cyclone Energy. So instead of just counting the storms, this metric also accounts for how long they're around, how strong they get, and even though the season's been off to a very quick start in terms of name storms, a lot of the storms have been relatively weak and haven't lasted that long. Now, it changed a little bit with Hannah and Isaias, but that measure of ace actually isn't as high as we've seen in some other seasons.
0: That's good. So while there are more storms forming earlier, you know, they're not having, I guess, at least that intensity, or at least so far they haven't really, you haven't had a lot of big storms making landfall. Um, What about this trend? I know you mentioned Cristobal earlier, I believe last year we had Barry. Um, It seems like there are more storms as of late forming in the Gulf resulting in earlier storms. uh, You know, even before the season starts, is that a trend that you've, you've, you've seen?
2: Yeah, we've seen some of that for sure in recent years, and not just in the Gulf, but overall in the Gulf and the Atlantic. Uh, nobody that I have seen has really identified a mechanism behind it as of yet, or whether it's a long-term trend or just a quirk. Uh, there has been a lot of discussion. Uh, you know, as it stands right now, hurricane season officially starts on June first, and and that's something that's sort of artificially done by, by man and meteorologists. There's It's not like there's a switch that suddenly flips in the atmosphere of the ocean that makes June 1st the start of hurricane season. It was decided a number of years ago because most of our storms come after June 1st, but lately there's been more in May. So there's been a little bit of a push to maybe uh, identify the start of hurricane season a little sooner, but right now I don't think it has a ton of momentum the good news is typically those early season storms tend to be lower impact. Even if we do get something, they're usually not that bad.
0: Yeah, that's that's good to know. And, and I'm all for you know keeping hurricane season and hopefully whatever storms develop in as short a window as possible, as I'm sure many of our listeners are. So, shifting gears a little bit, um, we wanted to have you on the show because we've seen you know some headlines and. And news come out about this updated forecast for this year's 2020 atlantic hurricane season forecasters calling it extremely active with the potential of you know i think they said like five um, major storms making landfall so can you help walk us through it what um are the forecasters saying about the rest of this season and what's behind that updated forecast
2: yeah all the forecast groups that issue these uh Uh, Seasonal hurricane forecasts are posting big numbers. So uh, Dr. Phil Klotzbach is one of the uh, best known for the seasonal hurricane forecast. He actually studied under a guy named Dr. Bill Gray, who really originated the practice back in the 1980s. Dr. Gray passed away four or five years ago. Uh, Dr. Klotzbach has taken the baton and continued it. So he came out about a week ago. And updated his forecast and said uh, he's going with 24 24 named storms, 12 hurricanes, and five major hurricanes. Now, a major hurricane is Category 3, 4, or 5. Uh, now, those numbers do include the nine named storms and two hurricanes that have already developed. But that's still a lot of activity going forward. And then NOAA. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the parent agency of the National Weather Service, also came out with their updated outlook. And it's similar. They give a range, but their forecast is 19 to 25 named storms, 7 to 11 hurricanes, and 3 to 6 major hurricanes. And just to put it in perspective, if we got uh, around Dr. Klotzbach's forecast of 24 named storms, that would be the second most active season on record in the Atlantic in terms of named storms and we've got records that go all the way back to about 1850. Wow.
1: So so Steve, we're almost out of alphabet letters at that point. <laughs> right. I, there's did I hear that there's a plan for is it Greek letters after that? What yeah. there's a yeah.
2: Yeah. So one of my favorite things to talk, I, I do a lot of school talks with kids and, and I go over how these names work and we talk about a couple of different things. Number one, the list that there's six list of names and they get rotated. They get reused every six years. So the, the names that are used in 2020 come up again in 2026. Now an exception is the storm's really bad. Does a lot of damage, or if there's a a big loss of life, they'll retire the name, replace it. So, for instance, there will never be another Hurricane Katrina. There's a big, long list of names, but that's an example. Uh, But the other thing I like to point out to the kids, uh, I always ask them, I say, how many letters are in the alphabet? And usually they'll say 26. (laughs) They'll get that. And then I'll have them count the list of names I have up on the uh, PowerPoint, and they'll count it, and it's 21 names every year. So we don't use Q, U, X, Y, or Z. Uh, The agency that comes up with the names decided a long time ago, there's not enough names to start with those letters, so they left them off. But ultimately, if we go through all 21 names, we move on to the Greek alphabet. So those are names like alpha, beta, gamma, and you go uh, on down the list. It's only happened once before, and you might be able to guess when it happened. It was it was 2005, the the record season we had that that had Katrina, that had Rita, that had Wilma in South Florida, and so many other uh, storms. There were 28 named storms in
1: 2005. Yeah, Steve, you bring up a good point. We're coming up to the 15th anniversary of Katrina, and and I actually never put that together because just one month later after Katrina was our Rita in September so you're right that must have been that must have been a wild I, I don't I don't remember it for lots of reasons but that must have been a wild season but you can still have bad storms in kind of slower seasons though too right
2: yeah it's a key point about these forecasts is uh, dr. Klotzbach does produce some landfall probabilities for regions of the coast. Uh, That part of the forecast tends to be a little less accurate. Uh, Overall, we like to tell people the seasonal hurricane forecast, don't tell us so much about where the storms are going to end up. But to your point, we have a couple of really great examples here in Louisiana of high-impact storms that hit in otherwise quiet seasons. So one example we always give was 1965 Betsy. That overall was a a fairly quiet hurricane season, but that was a major impact in Louisiana. Betsy, uh, in fact, in an update that came out last year, now deemed a a Category 4 hurricane when it hit Louisiana. And then the other big example was uh, Hurricane Andrew in 1992. So if you think about that, Andrew was late August 1992, and it was the A storm. Right And right now, it's early to mid-August. So we're already on the I-Storm, about to go on to the J-Storm. So, uh, 92 was a, a quiet year overall, but a, a big impact. Uh, Andrew was actually Category 5 in South Florida and then hit Louisiana as Category 3.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, that is just so interesting. And you don't really think about it, like you were saying, Simone, Katrina and Rita, one month later, how many storms were in between. And then what you were saying, Steve, um, with Andrew, that that first storm being in in mid to late August, it's just, yeah, these things are, you you kind of forget about them, but it's important to to reflect on. Um, Well, you know, it, it is important to, you know, have these forecasts for people to be aware throughout hurricane season. We have a great episode from a few months back where we had Ruby Douglas from the governor's office of Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness. Who was on? Um, and she talked about the importance of getting a game plan. And so, highly encourage people to go back and listen to that episode as well as check out the GoSEP website, GetAGamePlan.org, I believe. Um, but Steve, any other advice you would give to people? You know, who uh, want to make sure they're prepared now before you know a, a storm is even potentially about to make landfall.
2: Yeah, a couple of things we always have to consider. One thing, I think emergency managers and, and by proxy, it's kind of fallen on us meteorologists to try and relay the message. Uh, I know when I was growing up, we evacuated uh, thinking about obviously the water. I grew up in the New Orleans area, but also wind was part of the equation. But emergency managers really want people typically most often only to evacuate if you're being threatened by the rising water, so for instance, where I am up in Baton Rouge, there shouldn't be too many people that need to think about evacuating for uh, an approaching hurricane. Now there there are exceptions. Uh, last year we had the threat of Hurricane Barry that was forecast to maybe produce rainfall that rivaled what happened up here in 2016, and we know that produced uh, record river flooding. So people that are in flood-prone areas uh, along the rivers, things like that, you, you think about evacuating. But a key message is if you are at a relative high spot where you're not in significant danger from rising water, emergency managers actually prefer you to, to stay put and reduce the traffic on the roads, reduce the the load on the shelters, reduce the loads on the hotels, the other thing I think is the key point this year is just thinking about COVID, right? So a couple of added supplies in the kit, uh, having some extra mask, having more hand sanitizer. Uh, in, in talking with the people at Gozep, they, they prepared for this before hurricane season. The shelters are going to be ready. There's just going to be more spacing. Uh, you know, they'll take temperatures on the way in. They still plan on having shelters if needed, but it's going to be a little bit different. So, you know, that, that, that's something else to to think about in this world, the COVID.
1: Yeah, I thought Ruby did a great job, um, kind of explaining that, um, about be prepared always, but also now with this extra COVID layer on top of that, we have to, um, uh, definitely make sure we have our, get a game plan in place. I don't want to let this escape um, the show, but Steve brought up he grew up in the New Orleans area. He's actually a brother, Martin grad. I just wanted to just, you know, just poke that rivalry a little bit because Jacques <laughs> a Jesuit grad. So I, I just, I just had to. I just, I just cannot let that slide. So thanks, Steve, for letting me walk right in on that one and, and poke the bear.
2: <laughs> Jacques and I are gonna brawl it out in the street after we're done with
1: <laughs> <it>. <laughs> you. You might not. You might not get a chance to have your big football game this year, so uh, we'll have to we'll have to renew the rivalry here on on Delta Dispatches.
2: It's so funny as you as you grow older, you remember how big of a deal that was in high school, and then you get a little bit older, and you, you kind of laugh about all that. And obviously, I've I've got a ton of friends from uh, who graduated from Jesuit, and and even some relatives. But uh, yeah, no doubt, when we were in high school, it, w- it was hardcore.
0: Yeah, As long as we don't have any uh, Holy Cross rats on the show, I'll be good. Yeah, I'm just kidding. But, um, but no, yeah, it's so funny. And I do have friends, uh, a number of friends that went to Brother Martin. Um, I remember when I was in high school, the big rivalry was uh, wrestling and Jesuit had like 14, 15 years of state wrestling championships in a row and then Brother Martin, when I got to high school, that was the year that Brother Martin toppled us. So that was like the big, you know, the big thing.
2: But Yeah, they, they got pretty dominant in that for a while, no doubt. Yeah. And, yeah,
0: and then you guys went on to to kind of keep that um, championship for a while. So always fun. Well, um, Steve, I, I have a few last questions for you. One is just kind of, you know, you're such a great resource on the air as well as off the air. So where can people go to follow you online at WAFB and then on your Twitter account, where you share so much great, so many great resources and just interesting pieces of news? Where where can people make sure to stay in touch with you? Sure. So I work
2: for WAFB in Baton Rouge. I've, I've been here for seventeen years, which is kind of amazing when I say it out loud. But uh, on social media, on Twitter, uh, I'm at Steve WAFB. And then on Facebook, uh, Steve Caparata, WAFB. Uh, people that know me or follow me for a while know I am pretty active on social media. I'm a bit of an addict, uh, so I do post a lot. So uh, now I'll warn you, while the majority of it is weather-related, I am I am a huge sports fan. So if we ever do get back to uh, some sort of normalcy here with sports, uh, be ready for some occasional Sports content and sports rants uh, on the Saints, LSU, all that sort of stuff.
0: Well, fair enough, and hopefully, you know, we'll get to a point where we, we can get that uh, information and kind of commentary from you soon. There's also other commentary that you've shared recently, or at least uh, you know news, and I, maybe this is just me, you know, being at home too much and and watching, you know, the revamped Unsolved Mysteries. That I saw this and I was like, oh my gosh, what is going on? I heard there was some sort of a UFO sighting or something in and around Baton Rouge. Uh, what was that all about?
2: Yeah, so uh, late last week, we were, my wife and I were outside with our, our two daughters, which has kind of been one upside to all this COVID mess, is we're actually spending more time together outside. We see our neighbors outside, but we're we're literally just sitting in some chairs. And I look up at the sky and I say, what is that? It looks kind of like a couple of balloons. And then keep watching. They're not moving. It seems like they're not moving. Uh, we have several neighbors out and, and they spot a third one. And it was just really strange. And then one of our viewers, while I'm still sitting outside, sends me a, a message via Facebook. She actually got a decent video of it. So it was a real mystery. We're trying to figure out what it was. Well, ultimately, we got the answer. It was pretty cool. So it's these uh, high-altitude balloons. It's part of what was called or is called Project Loon. And it's one of these projects where uh, they've launched these high-altitude balloons to try and deliver uh, Internet to uh, areas that uh, may not have much of the way of service. Now, we've got decent service around here. I don't know if these are test flights, what they are. Uh, other people were able to show me that there's that website flight radar and the app where you can track uh, planes, but it actually showed you the balloons too. Uh, The balloons were up uh, about 10 miles up. They were only moving about 10 to 15 miles per hour. So they ended up being spotted over a good chunk of South Louisiana. They eventually, I caught them whatever night it was. By the next morning, they were only down along the Louisiana coast. So they were moving slow, but uh, yeah, I kind of joked about maybe being aliens the next step here in 2020, but it, it turned out it was those balloons.
0: Well, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was in store <laughs> for the rest of the year. Let's not, not tempt the gods, right? Right, exactly. Well, you know, and I can imagine for so many people who may have seen that just to, for it to be a little confusing. So thank you for helping to clarify. Um, and, and pretty cool to know that that, that project's ongoing. Um, so I guess Steve now it is time for the real fun question since we, we asked you the other fun question um, I guess what you mentioned sports what sport you know team and and sport specifically are you most looking forward to getting back into once once it's safely able to do that again
2: uh so now my, my biggest love is football even though when I was a kid I was more about basketball and baseball but uh, so for me it's neck and neck with lsu football and saints football i'm ready ready for both to be back ready to have that to look forward to on the weekends now my wife's not so excited about those potentially coming back Uh, but uh no that without a doubt it's football for me
0: awesome well you know i i assume when that cold front comes through it's going to make people even more excited uh for football right so um, awesome, Steve. Well, thank you so much for for being on the show, for helping us walk through this updated Atlantic hurricane season forecast, and just sharing your insights. You're always welcome to come back, um, and we hope you have um, a safe and healthy rest of 2020 and uh, you know hurricane season. Do, you, do meteorologists typically go on vacation after hurricane season? Is that kind of your time to, to relax or
1: you know, or, do you,
2: or do you schedule in between? You're
1: like accountants in tax season. You can't take a vacation until it's all done. <laughs>
2: hey, look, I've got two accountants in my family, so I know all about that. But uh, yeah, there's two ways you can treat it. You could either just flat out schedule everything around hurricane season or if you schedule any vacation during hurricane season – you absolutely know you better be flexible and ready to cancel. So we often, my family, we, we schedule trips, but we know it comes with the risk of having to cancel. And it, I, I remember a great example, actually, it's been a little while, but Hurricane Gustav in 2008 was a, a, a big impact up here in Baton Rouge. Uh, but we had, uh, my wife and I were supposed to be going to the beach uh, that weekend. We, we had to cancel that one. So it happens.
0: Awesome. Well, we hope you are able to kind of get some rest and relaxation after hurricane season or in the midst and, and, you know, from all the craziness with 2020 and good luck with sending the girls back to school and daycare. And thanks again for
2: being on Steve. Thank you guys. I appreciate it.
0: All right. Well, right before our break, it is time for our coastal voice of the week. And this week's coastal voice comes from Paula and Raceland And Paula says, I support the coast because I don't want to lose our wonderful culture in South Louisiana. Uh, We couldn't agree with you more, Paula. And if you want to share your voice, um, go to MississippiRiverDelta.org slash restore dash the dash coast. Let us know why coastal restoration is important to you, and you might just hear it on the air. Um, We'll be right back after the break with another segment of Delta Dispatches. Hello, welcome back. You are listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Bear with Environmental Defense Fund.
1: And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat.
0: And if you're listening to our new music, it is from the artist Andrew Peter Kingslow. Uh, the album is Gumbo Funk, and the song is Show Me New Orleans. I like it, Simone. It's a little... I like it, too. Funky, it. It kind of reminds me of like they all asked for you or something. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and love uh, featuring local artists. So I loved, you know, catching back up with Steve. Um, you know, I think meteorologists for me have always been. You joke it's it's the, the career I, I wish I had, but you know, they're people that um, you know have helped guide us through the weather, and also you know just such great spokespeople for for Louisiana and and our coast and all those things. So really appreciate um, having Steve back on.
1: Yeah. I'd love to have him one as well. I, I at one time thought about doing that myself. And then I was like, wait, there's like actual physics involved. <laughs> so,
0: yeah. I, I kind of stopped at the whole science part. So I'm like, much. what do you mean you can't just, yeah. Um, but anyway, like, like following them on Twitter and uh, admiring them from afar. So, um, all right. And this week's coastal stat of the week is from an article in Southerly magazine by Xander Peters. Um, the stat is that um, Plaquemines Parish is one of the fastest eroding parts of Louisiana's coast. Up to half of its land has disappeared over the past 80 years, and people are leaving in droves. From 2000 to 2010, the small fishing community of Venice, near the Mississippi River, about an hour south from Lagarde's home, lost really ha- roughly half of its population. After Hurricane Isaac, only about 40% of the population returned to rebuild. Um, so you can check out that article. Um, on southerlymag.org, uh, you know, really, uh, you know, devastating stat, but also a, a reminder of the urgency um, and, and the need to act um, to protect as much of Louisiana's coast as
1: possible. Yeah, it certainly kind of zeroes in on the impacts to particular communities. Sometimes we throw out stats like you know, 2,000 square miles land of loss, right? But but that really zeroes in on a particular community and and how heavy that impact has been. Um, between just the land loss and the impact from storms.
0: So. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that's a great way to put it, Simone, that it's, it's beyond just, you know, um, square miles and, and kind of these big stats, but you're losing, you know, communities, you're losing industries, you're, you're losing culture with it. And so, um, you know, just so important that folks are aware of that. And, and good to see that this article, as well as others, are reaching more na- national audiences so that they're aware as well um, when we're talking about this. I did want to ask, you know, um, there was some news that happened in the last several weeks, um, you know, uh, uh, some sad news about the passing of Dr. Sherwood Woody Gagliano. Um, You know, in our organization, some of our leaders have worked really closely with him and we put out a statement, um, you know, kind of recognizing him as a renowned scientist who was one of the first to document and alert the world to Louisiana's coastal land loss crisis. I know you worked with Dr. Gagliano, um, Simone, so certainly sorry for, um, you know, the loss as well as, you know, my condolences go out to his family and colleagues and all who are touched by him. But would you mind sharing, um, you know, some thoughts about Dr. Gagliano? I know he had such a huge impact on the work that we do.
1: Yeah, it is, it is certainly sad to hear of, of Woody's passing, but um, so many people said it. Um, he left just such a legacy, and it's on us to kind of continue on with his work. And um, he was one of the first people to sound the alarm, and, and he was close to several founding members of Restore or Retreat. And so while I've been here a long time, um, uh, the Restore Retreat is actually celebrating our 20th anniversary this year. And so we had a connection to Dr. Gagliano that, that predates even when we started. And he was close to several different people um, here in, in Terrebonne and Lafourche because he was greatly concerned about, in particular, the land loss issues of um, the Barrett and Terrebone Terrebonne Basins. And Jacques, he had this, at the time, seemed like a, just this totally crazy idea of a massive sediment diversion, um, and it actually um, would split into two and feed both the Barataria and Terrebonne basins. And that, um, at the time, was called the Third Delta um, to build another delta. And 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 Woody just thought of this to mimic the Atchafalaya and the Mississippi deltas, right? And this would become the Third Delta. And and it was just so radical um, that that. You know, 20 years ago, it was a really tough discussion to have, and, and Woody just wanted to push the envelope to say, this is what we need. We need a diversion in the higher up in the Mississippi River system, and this is what it's going to take to combat the land loss um, in both the barrett Terry, and Terrebonne basins. And the uh, Department of Natural Resources um, took that idea and they did a reconnaissance level study. And and one of the initial findings was that the project was going to cost about a billion dollars. And, and people just, at the time, it was just really, really, really hard to wrap their brain around a billion dollar price tag. Um, but now, Jacques, we know about how much this problem is costing us. And it is a billions and billions and billions of dollar problem, right? Of economic impacts and loss after after hurricanes, and so Woody was just so smart, but he was also unafraid to push the envelope. And um, I I just so respected him for that. He stood up in so many meetings and said, "This is what we need to do. This is how we need to do it." Um, and so I know his his work slightly changed over the years. He started to work with with parishes in particular, but um, that that tenacity, if that's the right word, of of Woody just being unafraid to say that this is this is what Louisiana's coast needs, and yes, it's going to be hard. Um, so, so that is always how I will remember Woody, and um, I think, I think every day um, people work on his ideas and, and work to progress them, um, to push for those solutions that we need for our coast, especially those natural solutions about returning the system to where it really needs to be.
0: Wow. I mean, what a legacy. And, you know, I know on the show we've talked a lot about the next generation and we've interviewed kind of, um, you know, younger students or those who are kind of new in their careers. And we've asked a lot of people who are currently kind of established in their careers about what advice they'd give to the next generation. But I mean, thinking about kind of the prior generation, the people who laid this foundation of the work that we're all doing today and who alerted, you know, the world to something like is losing land, and here's what we need to do about it, right? Um, and so it's just such an inspiration, and, and I, I'll just share kind of a little bit of the statement that our groups put out, um, but basically just saying that Louisiana is a much better place because of the knowledge, passion, and dedication of Dr. Woody Gagliano. His legacy should inspire us all to continue to build on the solid foundation he has left us. We mourn his loss, celebrate his life, and send our deepest condolences and heartfelt prayers to his family, friends, colleagues, and all those he touched in life. Well, Well, what what a legacy. Um, Speaking of legacy, um, we wanted to talk about kind of one of those projects that just seemed, you know, so important and foundational, even 30 years ago, when people were asking, like, how do we confront this land loss crisis, Um, the mid breton sediment diversion. So we're still in the Scoping period for that project, another five days to go. The scoping period comment closes on August 16th. Um, so now's a great time to go in, you know, send your questions, provide any comments of what you would like to see addressed in the environmental impact statement to the core. Um, and we have a webpage that has a lot of resources and information about how you can do that, including what scoping is. Um, how you can submit comments and all those details. So just go to mississippiriverdelta.org slash breton dash scoping. And you can also tune into our last episode where we had officials from the Corps as well as Environmental Law Institute who gave a really great overview of the scoping process.
1: Yeah, it's not too late, right? uh, It's best for people to understand there's multiple points of entry on this discussion, and then this is one of them for you to present questions or um, things that you want them to consider while they're studying this. There'll be other points. We are not done um, discussing this, and this isn't doesn't just go into a black hole until 2024, right? There's multiple points where, where we can have this discussion. But now's the time to ask those questions and, and to talk about the things that you want to talk about related to this project. And I, I do, I, I loved having um, both um, ELI and the core on for the discussion, because I thought they were very clear and concise about um, what point in the process this is and what questions they could ask. Uh, I think, Chuck, you can still go back and watch those um, virtual meetings that they had as well, and then go to our our webpage as a as a resource. And there's also an easy easy way for you to take action too, though, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, you can go to slash breton scoping um, and get all that information and um, actually, you know, answer a few simple questions, and and that'll result in um, a scoping comment that you can edit, you did it. it. And I I still need to do mine, Simone, I have five days left. But but yeah, it's super simple and um, it'll go directly to the core um, that they will be able to address in the the environmental impact statement. So reminder to do that.
1: Hey, I also saw on Twitter that some of our past guests recently deserve some congratulations too, right?
0: Yeah, some awards coming out, so the films "Last Call for the Bayou" have been selected as a finalist in the Jackson Wild, um, you know, kind of film festival awards, uh, and it's being recognized in the limited series short form category. Um, and then, you know, as the, the entire series, and then "On a Wing and a Prayer" specifically is a finalist in the conservation short form category. So huge. Congrats to Nadia and Dom Gill and everyone at Encompass Films. Um, this is a really big deal in the environmental film world and just film world in general.
1: Yeah, they are beautiful. So they definitely are deserving of, of the recognition. So um, that's awesome. Uh, congratulations to Encompass and, and them as well. So another, some other guests, is this, is this our theme of like us bragging on past guests, right? Uh, some uh, previous guests, um, some of our friends um, at the Times with Union New Orleans Advocate and ProPublica had received some recognition as well.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, Sarah Sneath, Tristan Barak, Um, Joan Miners, uh, Gordon Russell, and and many others contributed to um, an investigative piece uh, called Polluter's Paradise, and it was selected um, by the Society of Environmental Journalists for their Kevin Carmody Award for Outstanding Investigative Journalism for a Large Newsroom. So that's another huge uh, recognition, well-deserved recognition to the entire team that worked on that, and just great to see, again, Louisiana's content and reporting um, being recognized nationally for the work that that these journalists and these filmmakers are doing. So huge congrats to that entire team.
1: Did you, um did you tune into the Washington Post panel with Skate? Were you able to tune into that? I, I did too. So I, I wanted to see if you did and get your take on it.
0: I did. Yeah. So last week, um, you know, Washington Post has uh, a few series of live events that they do. And they had one last week that featured um, Christiana Figueres, who is a huge um, kind of uh, person that I admire significantly. She worked on the um, Paris Accords, um, as well as the former president of Ireland on to talk about climate change and the need for action. Um, Then they had the mayor of Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti, um, on talking about his perspectives. And in between them, they had WWNO's Tegan Wendland as well as scape founder and principal, Kate Orff. And they were highlighting Louisiana and um, you know, a new project that's been put out by the Walton family foundation and others called our future coast. Um, and so, you know, Don Bosch, who we've had on the show before, um, Dr. Dr. Bosch, you um, contributed to this report and it really looks at what is at stake or what, what do we seek to gain by doing restoration, right? So we always hear about the red maps and land loss and what we'll lose and this, Um, report kind of talks about the opportunity and what we have um, to gain by doing restoration in terms of preserving the bounty of Louisiana's coast, protecting communities, creating opportunity, all of those sorts of things. Um, And the report has been visualized into a really amazing and beautiful um, website called ourfuturecoast.org, where you can go and learn about, you know, all the different basins and, and what, you know, how the basins will benefit from Pontchartrain, all the way you know, to Terrabone and beyond um, from restoration. It features a beautiful video uh, by Chef Isaac tube So really great tool for folks to go and learn more about the opportunity that we have if we act. Um, one of the other things that they highlight is the, the window of opportunity and, and, that we have in terms of doing restoration. So we talk about you know, future scenarios and sea level rise and all of these things. Um, you know th- this project really highlights why the next few years are critical um uh to our future in terms of getting restoration done sooner um before the effects of sea level rise can really take hold
1: so you can find that at our futurecoast.org um it's a, a easy address to get to but you mentioned chef isaac tubes and he has recently contributed a recipe to um, our Coastal Community block And so have you tried the recipe?
0: I have not tried the it recipe yet. It looks good. You know, and every time I go to that page and see all those recipes and photos, I just get immediately hungry. So I've been trying to, you know, uh, not go overboard there. But um, yeah, our organization rolled out a new Coastal Community Cookbook. Um, it features recipes from Chef Isaac Tubes, as well as Arthur Johnson um, with Lower Ninth Ward uh, Community Center for Engagement Development, Um, Aaron Brown with Vanishing Paradise uh, and others. So Ted Falgu um, has an alligator sauce piquant recipe. So um, lots of great recipes. And the aim is to focus on local dishes that highlight the bounty of Louisiana's coast and tell the stories of the people who make them. The dishes can be anything that harness ingredients bound in the coastal habitats of Louisiana, such as shrimp, crab, oyster, crawfish, finfish, or even wild boar. Um, So basically, if you can buy it, catch it, or otherwise get your hands on it, uh, we want to know how you cook it. So um, you can go on um, MississippiRiverDelta.org slash recipes. You can see the recipes that have been posted and contribute your own um, I don't know about you, Simone, but I won't be sharing my my grandma's recipes. Recipes
1: that are not proprietary and can be shared. Oh. Exactly. We
0: don't <laughs> want anyone, you know, kind of creating a family rift or like causing like problems by sharing their mama's <laughs> the, the like the ultra secret. secret. Yeah. Yeah first address and recipe. But for those recipes that are, you know, public and, and won't cause um, family strife, please go on and share them or just go in and check out the recipes and try to cook them yourself. Obviously, a lot of this is um, in order to support the, you know, um, people who are catching seafood, the the people who are, are kind of sourcing Louisiana's, um, you know, bounty in this time, and, and also our restaurants and kind of raise awareness to the the plight that's happened as a result of the coronavirus and, and just uh, everything that's followed. So we hope to have Samantha Carter on the show uh, soon, as well as maybe one of our chef friends to talk about the cookbook and, and uh, you know, highlight kind of why they're doing this. So for now, go on to Mississippi river delta.org slash recipes and, and check them out and submit your own
1: So um, Isaac's you. recipe is drunken shrimp right? So uh, like, like as if you need to be tempted to try that. And we've talked with our friends in the past from Louisiana Direct Seafood, which is um, a program of, of Louisiana Sea Grant. And you can go on to Louisiana Direct Seafood and you can find suppliers in your area direct off the boat. You can find out when the boat's coming in. Um, I know I bought some seafood this weekend and they were like, we don't have any crabs just yet, but they're coming. And so you love when things are that fresh. Um, and lots of folks are still cooking at home and we want to encourage them to to buy Louisiana seafood and, and cook with that. So this is great timing on that part. And um, maybe we'll have some of our other friends start a separate blog about the bread to pair. You know, if you're at home baking your bread, <laughs> the bread to pair with the seafood that you're Yeah, getting.
0: exactly. Well, I don't know. I'm just I think Arthur Johnson's uh, Mama's Louisiana yeah. Stuffed Shrimp looks pretty good. I'm, if I'm going to start with one, I might have to start there. Um, Isaac's recipe may be a little ambitious. I don't know. I haven't looked at it. Maybe, <laughs> maybe not. Isaac's
1: restaurant.
2: Exactly.
0: So. <laughs> well, um, you know, last up in terms of news, uh, we've had a great blog that came out, um, kind of featuring a, a really crucial project in your neck of the woods, the Home and Navigational Canal Law Complex, and the, the blog's by Victoria Segrera with Restore Retreat. So tell us a little bit about the blog and the project. Um, and, and just, you know, it's, people can check it out at our website, MississippiRiverDelta.org. And I know y'all will post it on Restore Retreat. But tell us a little bit about what the blog covers.
1: Yeah, so the Homer Navigational Canal Lock complex has been years in the making. Um, It is um, often seen as a critical component of the Morgansett to the Gulf hurricane protection system, but actually it is a critical restoration component. It was included in previous Louisiana coastal area studies, which even predates the um, coastal master plan. It's really important for stabilizing, um, frankly, the hydrology of our area, keeping the salt water out and the freshwater where it needs to be. Um, right now, there's um, there's a barge um, that's some emergency protection, but they want to be able um, to convert it to a lock so that traffic can flow and you can keep it closed um, more times um. Then you're able to do that now. And so um, it's been a project that's been years in the making. It's, it's um, close to $400 million um, in, in construction costs. And uh, it's a partnership between the CPRA and the local levy district here. Uh, the Bone Levy and Conservation District. Victoria does a really great um, deep dive into what the complex is going to look like and what the benefits are, certainly um, not just environmental, but economic as well. So again, it's the linchpin of a protection system here, but it's really the cornerstone of, of restoration as well. And that's one of several projects that are working in our area. Um, there's at least, I think, four other projects, um, major projects that are uh, either in active construction um, or will be going to construction um, by the year 2021. Can you believe that? But there's several really great projects going on in this area. Um, that project is is likely to be funded using some post-BP dollars, and so uh, yet another reason why we follow that project to make sure that those dollars are going to uh, master plan projects that that really make a difference in in our.
0: Well, yeah, I think Victoria did a really great job talking about why that project's needed, how it will benefit the landscape, and then also how the needs of restoration will be balanced with storm surge protection and navigation and all of those things. So definitely check out the blog. And you may not know this, but one of the uh, wildlife species that will be benefited by the project is the purple So Oh, I knew that. Oh, you knew that? Okay. Yeah. All right. Just sneaking a bird reference in at the end. Well, Simone, another awesome show. Huge thanks again to Steve Caparata from WAFB for joining us. Um, Great to chat with you and catch up. And we have a lot more awesome shows coming. Awesome
1: shows coming up. It it feels like the start of a school year, Jacques, that we're all ready to go, right?
0: Yeah, we operate on the academic year. So we've been on summer break, but now we're back (laughs) and we're ready to roll. So Um, Reminder, go ahead, subscribe to our podcast, rate us, like us, subscribe, share us with your friends because it's 135 episodes. I guess this is 136. We're not stopping anytime soon. So we'll be back on our next episode. We'll see you later, alligators on Delta Dispatches.